You are listening to When Policy Meets Practice from JFF, where we delve into the practical realities of education and workforce development policy with practitioners on JFF's Policy Leadership Trust. Hello, and welcome to another episode of When Policy Meets Practice, a podcast from JFF where community college leaders talk about education and workforce development policies and what they mean for students. I'm Paul Fain, the podcast host. This episode looks at the Biden administration's $109 billion free community college plan. I spoke with presidents of two community colleges that have experience with free tuition programs, Russell Lowry Hart of Amarillo College in Texas, and Bill Pink from Grand Rapids Community College in Michigan. President Lowry Hart described how he's made the case for Amarillo's Thrive Scholarship a free tuition program in one of the nation's most conservative regions. He also talked about how community colleges must work to improve student success rates to make sure free college programs pay off for students and taxpayers. In Emerald College, we moved from 19 to 58% completion by accelerating learning and killing DevEd and offering stackable short-term credentials that lead to degrees and certificates and transfer that help long-term. Those things are important, especially for the students that I think are going to benefit the most from a free college program. They're going to see success. They've got to have wraparound supports, not just wraparound economic supports, but social supports that can help them tackle the life barriers that are keeping them from completing in a lot of communities across the country. President Pink also talked about the political dynamic around free tuition programs, including how his state has been able to create two of the nation's largest of such scholarships, Futures for Frontliners and Michigan Reconnect. Part of the key, Pink said, is to view this opportunity for once-in-a-generation government support from a holistic, community-wide level. Is there a way we can think more in terms of ecosystem and sustainability of our community with these dollars? So, Is there something that we can at the college say, okay, with these dollars that we know are coming to us, here's the lane we're going to play in. And city, county, economic development, all these entities, workforce investment, how do we make sure that we can align where all of these funnels and channels of money make sense to the whole and not just to my organization? At the end of each episode of this podcast, I speak with experts from JFF to discuss what we heard from the community college leaders. This week, I was joined by Lexi Barrett, who leads JFF's state and federal policy work, and by Dave Altstadt, who directs JFF's Policy Leadership Trust. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get to the conversation. All righty, I'm here with Russell Lowry Hart, president of Amarillo College in Texas. Russell, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for including in the conversation today. Thank you. So big topic. We're talking free community college. I thought we could start with what sort of aid and scholarship programs you all have in place at Amarillo. Uh, In Amarillo, we have what we call a Thrive Scholarship Program. It's our version of free college. It's in the pilot stage. We committed to a six-year pilot that is targeting every graduating high school senior in our city. And the initial results are really encouraging. Students that come on Thrive are completing at higher rates, they're retaining at higher rates, and they're transferring at higher rates. So we think this is a pilot that will take hold permanently. 
So as you know, in Washington, as we speak, they're talking about a, a big program, uh, $109 billion for free community college nationwide. And more than that, $62 billion for student success, increases in Pell Grants. You've, you've made the case for Thrive locally, I'm sure. Yeah. How do you do that about something as ambitious as a national free community college program? It's a worthy conversation, and I think there are legitimate arguments on all sides of it. And we've had them locally. Amarillo College sits in the most conservative congressional district in the country. Yet we have a Thrive Free College program because it makes economic sense. We know locally that our economic future, my economic future, the economic future of my own kids depends on the education attainment rate of everyone in my community. And Edward Glazer is an economist. He wrote this book called Triumph of the City. And he predicts which cities are going to succeed or fail based on one number, education attainment. And the biggest barrier to education attainment in our local community was access to education in a way that they felt like they could afford. And the Thrive Program is targeting that books, tuition, and fees for three years or 60 hours, uh, whichever is first for all graduating high school seniors. And our community is committed to that in a public-private partnership because we know our economy is only going to grow if we can build a more educated workforce than we have right now. So Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri, a Republican uh, health committee member, made an argument recently that we're going to be hearing a lot, I'm guessing, in this debate as, as folks push back. His argument was that that you've already got the Pell Grant covering most of the tuition costs of community colleges. Why do we need free community college? And, and he also said there's there's state and local programs like Thrive. So it's unnecessary was, was the, the point. How do you respond to that? I would say that what our local program shows is that not only are they necessary, they're effective and they need to be broadened. So if you look at a lot of local community programs like ours that are Thrive focused, they're targeted to a smaller population. And the free college movement is really looking at opening it up to everyone, not just certain targeted populations. The economic benefit of that to local communities, especially rural communities, could be transformative. It could be the difference between Amarillo, where we live, doubling its population or shrinking over the next 20 years. It's that critical in our ability to diversify our economy with a skilled workforce that's more than just low-skill manual labor jobs, which are really where our economic growth has been in the last decade. Important jobs, but we're not going to grow and diversify our economy, especially in a tech economy, over the next 20 years with that same skill set. We've got to build it. And these programs, I think, are the best defense in doing that. You know, I remember when Tennessee, under Governor Bill Haslam, began its free community program. Well, you know, Obama went out there to, to celebrate it with him. One of the debates there was the kind of targeted aid versus universal aid question. And also, are we maybe going to be subsidizing middle and upper income students who don't need the aid? And, you know, one thing that I think did happen is you saw some some enrollment pulled toward community colleges away from four-year publics. When you think about a program of this ambition, 
those legitimate concerns? I think there are things that we need to keep our our we need to continue to check the pulse on those issues. But they're not issues that I have concerns about because I've seen the opposite of that locally. It has increased the number of students willing to transfer. It will fundamentally improve enrollment in our university partners and improve enrollment in our university partners at a junior and senior level where our states reimburse them at a higher rate than they do freshman and sophomore anyway. The other thing that I think is a really important conversation to have that is often missed is that our middle class families are typically the ones that need it the most. When you look at home ownership in our community, home ownership has decreased significantly over the last decade, especially for people 34 and under. You can directly tie that to student loan debt where our middle-class families have sacrificed their economic future with home ownership, which has been a foundational tenet of our country's economy for a college degree. They're the families that are going to benefit the most from these free college programs because they're going to be able to start at a community college and get their books and tuition and paid for and be able to save their money to go to the university where the aid is not as robust. So instead of graduating with $100,000 in debt with a four-year degree, they may incur twenty dollars to $25,000 in debt that they can pay back in ways that they could never pay the hundred dollars to $200,000 back. So this program is important for our, our families living in the war zone of poverty, but it's equally important to our economy for our middle-class families to have access to this same support. Well, that's a good point. And we're seeing more data every day about young folks having taken the pandemic's impacts have hurt them more than, than anyone else. And, and that's part of the enrollment decline that we're seeing in your sector. I want to circle back on the enrollment at four years. Is, is your point that you're going to bring more people into the higher ed system overall with a free community college program? Yeah, I think that for our economy as a country to grow, we have to bring more people into the skilled workforce. And the best way to do that is through higher education. And the more people we get into higher education through a, a free college program into community colleges means there's going to be a bigger audience for transfer. It's truly a win win. There are a lot of people that come to community colleges that never would see themselves transferring that now because of Thrive are transferring and our local university partner has now added a scholarship just for Thrive students that they wouldn't have had otherwise. So I think we're building a pipeline that's going to be replicated all over the country. I know you're uh, pretty bold in your vision for uh making improvements to higher education, reimagining models. You spoke at uh, JFF's Horizons and, and talked about competency-based education, other ways to really, really change how we do things in this yeah. country. Are there ways to do that in a free community college program where you do more, more good than harm? What sort of yeah. strings do we want? Uh, you know, in the past, and I know you've talked about this, we've had requirements like residency requirements, GPA, even drug testing, but on the, on the other hand, with a big, bold policy like this, you don't get a lot of $100 billion chances to change things. We, we could do something. We could do dev ed reform. We could, we could do a few things that might actually have benefits. How do you do that? How do you strike that balance? 
it's an important conversation to have. I think the fewer strings, the better, the more robust it will be. We don't need to create bureaucracy through this process. We need to limit it. And what we've learned in our Thrive program is in the very beginning, some of our partners were concerned. And so we had strings attached that you had to be college ready, that it wouldn't fund dev ed. And so what did we do as a college? We killed dev ed. We don't have it anymore. We have those same dev ed supports for students that are in classes that are earning credit up front. And those students that would have tested in dev ed are actually completing those classes at a higher rate than their peers that weren't dev ed required. But we wouldn't have known that if we hadn't been in this free college movement that had those strings attached. We learned the string was a detriment, so we cut the string. The thing that worries me the most, Paul, is that we look, we're so worried that someone with nothing might get more than they deserve, that we put rules on it that keep out thousands of people that deserve it and need it. And I think we just have to trust our educators and our communities to manage these programs without the government uh, overruling them. Some of the conversations I think we need to have is, do we want to tie these aids to programs that lead to a family sustaining wage? I think that's a conversation we should have, but I don't think that residency requirements and drug testing are useful uses of funds and time. If you look at the states that have required it, it's futile, it's it's wheel spinning, and it's political, not effective. Well, it's a fair point that in this country, we sure do talk a lot about aid to, to lower income folks in ways that we don't for others. Yeah. That's a different podcast interview. <laughs> you know, just to push you though, say, say I'm a, a supportive policymaker listening to this. How can you ensure, how can you tell this person with relatively low completion rates in the sector we're still going to make sure that this aid goes to folks and helps them move ahead economically, economic mobility. What sort of assurance could you offer to that person? I can just offer our own experience where, sure, the system itself is challenging and there need to be reforms within higher education that are separate of this conversation. Completion is, is never a guarantee Yet we've got to improve our processes for completion. At Amarillo College, we moved from 19 to 58% completion by accelerating learning and killing dev ed and offering stackable short-term credentials that lead to degrees and certificates and transfer that help long-term. Those things are important, especially for the students that I think are gonna benefit the most from a free college program. They're going to see success. They've got to have wraparound supports, not just wraparound economic supports, but social supports that can help them tackle the life barriers that are keeping them from completing in a lot of communities across the country. But some of it is just going to have to be, look at the places that it is working. And Tennessee is an example. Amarillo College is an example. Grand Rapids is an example. Those are programs that may have started with strings, They've cut the strings, they broadened the, the support and offered short-term credentials. And I think we got to do more of it. I think especially for the adults that are out of the workforce and don't have the skills, 
these programs have got to bring them in, but we're not going to bring them in with promise of a two and four year degree. We're going to bring them in with a promise of a 12 week or 16 week program that leads to a job that pays more than they have now. And then once we get them in, show them the stackable credentials that they can earn uh, through a free college program. Well, Russell, I've been watching your work at Amarillo uh, for years. You've been ahead of the curve on wraparound supports, an idea that that certainly is getting more traction now. And uh, I hope we can keep in touch. It's going to be an interesting few years. Oh, yeah. And I can't let you go without congratulating you on a gift from Mackenzie Scott. I know that's going to make a big difference in your community. Uh, thank you. It, it will fundamentally help us transform um, our community. And we see it as a gift for our community that we're just the stewards of. And we're going to use it wisely. Thanks for your time, Russell. Thank you. Okay, now we're going to turn to Bill Pink from Grand Rapids. Alrighty, I'm speaking with Bill Pink, president of Grand Rapids Community College. Dr. Pink, how you doing? Paul, I am awesome today. It's a great day in Michigan. How are you? Doing well here in rainy D.C. So <laughs> we are here to talk about free college. And, you know, I think you are well placed to talk about scholarship programs, promise programs and, and what they can do. Can you talk a little bit about Reconnect and Frontliners and what you're seeing in the state in the last six months year? Oh, definitely. And so here in Michigan, back when our governor, Governor Whitmer, first hit office here about two and a half years ago or so, she announced this initiative of the Michigan Reconnect Grant. And what it was is that it was, and this is pre-pandemic, so she was trying to focus on folks who are 25 and older, some or no college, and no degree. It was part of her plan to get to what we call here in Michigan 60 by 30 that 60% of our population will have a post-secondary credential by 2030. And so it was part of that initiative. It was uh, met with mixed reviews at the legislature, then COVID hit. And isn't that the story of everything, (laughs) then COVID hit. And so what happened is that in digging out of COVID, she was able, in the midst of COVID, was able to get some traction on the Michigan Reconnect opportunity to where now, Starting this summer, this very summer, we have some of those Reconnect students on campus virtually and on, and literally on campus this summer. And those they are those folks who, again, 25 and older, some or no college, no degree. It is last dollar tuition paid. And so what we're seeing in that is that we're seeing a population of students who are coming to us in that regard, but also the Futures for Frontliners opportunity and what that is is that when the pandemic hit, and here in Michigan, back in 2020, March, April, a little bit of May, it was our period of shutdown. I mean, we totally shut down as a state, but there were those frontline workers who stayed at it, who we still needed to work. And so for those individuals, the Futures for Frontliners program says that if they worked and show proof of employment during that time period, that they too will be eligible for and are eligible. It doesn't matter what your age is. You can be digging out of, as far as high school is concerned, 16, 18 years old, or you may be a 48-year-old. doesn't matter. You are eligible for that last dollar tuition as well. What's been cool about that is we've seen quite a few of those students who are also on our campus. They hit campus back in January of 21, and now we are seeing those numbers really start to spin up. And as I mentioned to you earlier, one of the cool things of our timing today is that that Futures for Frontliners program just announced today 
that Governor Whitmer is now pushing toward adding another sum, I think about $100 million to that from some of the federal stimulus money is what it amounts to. She's looking at pushing that into that Futures for Frontliners that would then look at people who are still working from November 1st of 20 to January 31st of 21. Because again, state of Michigan, you remember, you know, state of Michigan, that Thanksgiving, Christmas is when surges started happening. We had another partial shutdown here in the state. Those frontliners also, as she is rolling out today, she wants them to be eligible for that as well. That adds about another possible 22,000 citizens to that Futures for Frontliners cohort, if you will. And so those two, we are already seeing from an enrollment perspective what that looks like. Our thing now, Paul, is making sure we are keeping the metrics on those folks who come to us in both of those regards. Because as you know, one of the big things that we want to do with these type programs is not only see who starts college, but who finishes. Not just get to college, but get through college. And so what we're looking at there is making sure we're keeping those metrics alive to make sure we are doing all we can to wrap our arms around those students to say, let's get you through this. Well, let's talk about that briefly before we get to federal free college. What are some of the pieces of those two programs, which, by the way, just phenomenal numbers have gotten attention around the country, particularly as your sector has taken a big enrollment hit and is the wording of reconnect is one that well done on that because that's the, that's the challenge of the day. How do you best ensure that taxpayers and participants get value out of that scholarship? Yeah, and it's a great question. And the way we're going about it is that we are making sure that we have some of our internal resources laser focused on those individuals. Community colleges, we are very good with saying the idea of not only what does advising look like, but Truly, as we like to term it, what does intrusive advising look like, where we just become a part of the, of the student's life almost, that they hear from us on a regular basis and that we're our outreach is there and that our outreach here to our own faculty to say, how's that going with our students? For us, that's going to be paramount here at our college. We are also an institution that here in Grand Rapids, we have the Grand Rapids Promise Zone. That one is focused on students within Grand Rapids public school catchment area. So if you live in that catchment area of our urban school district, if you live and go to school at a high school within that area, you are at that point eligible for last dollar tuition here at GRCC. The big thing there is that when I say you go to school there at a high school, it doesn't matter if it's a public, private or charter does not matter you are eligible for those dollars. You live in and, and graduate from that high school. So for us, that is a third piece to this puzzle to stay focused on who those students are because when we in higher ed, when we have these opportunities come to us from the state, federal level, doesn't matter. When we have these opportunities come to us, it is so vital that we're gonna show metrics that show success, whether that completion be a certificate, degree, or both, so that we can make, as we make the claim of the good work that we do, we got to back it up with data, Paul. Absolutely. Well, when I'm thinking about crafting good policy, which is obviously what this podcast is about, at the state level, I know that you all have, have worked on developmental education reform as part of these programs. What makes for a useful or a helpful driver of systemic change in a community college from a policymaker versus intrusive policymaking that doesn't help? 
I love that question, by the way. With developmental education for us uh, here in Michigan, it's a little bit of both of what you just said. So as this iteration of ReConnect has gotten off the ground and is being implemented, part of ReConnect and part of that policy is that institutions, community colleges, would also develop processes to move people quicker through the developmental ed process. So and really in moving a lot of those classes out and figuring how we redefine and reimagine what developmental education looks like. So you have it coming from the policy level. The way we did it at our college is that we saw the policy and then we brought our faculty in and our faculty are at the table, English, math, reading, writing, math, bring that faculty to the table and say, okay, here's what they're saying we have to do. And by the way, this isn't going to be just the way we do it with ReConnect students. This is the way we have to go uh, indefinitely as far as any student is concerned. Faculty, how do we want to get at chewing this up? So getting faculty at the table, Paul, I think is vital because those truly are the folks who are the ones who sit with these students and educate them and know them better than many of us, most of us do. So we have to listen to faculty in that regard so that we understand what that picture looks like and so that on the administrative side, we're not just going to push and say, here's how that's going to, because, whoa, we have this data from all over the country that says it. No, I want to know what it looks like here in Grand Rapids as well, so that we can make sure as we reimagine developmental education that it truly works for our students to advance them faster and to advance them in a sensible way. Now that we're moving that direction, I'm very anxious to see how we uh, reimagine our developmental education processes which I felt like we were doing, we're doing a lot of that stuff to begin with. It's going to take now being able to do some of that fine tuning to those processes so we can see if it indeed has that type of movement that what we're expecting to see. Gotcha. Yeah. So thinking about the political dynamic as here in Washington, we gear up for, you know, potentially spending a hundred billion plus on a, a federal free community college program, maybe 60 billion on student success. Uh, you know, I know in your state in the budget process, I don't know how symbolic it was, but some some Republican lawmakers put a little speed bump on the way for reconnect. And, you know, that's pretty scary. You've already made the promise. Speaking about a promise program to students. So to your peers around the country, how do you make the case for folks who aren't sold on this? Yeah, the first thing I would say is, and it shouldn't surprise us all that much when we see politics being played with as far as initiatives. And if it's initiatives, it's really people's lives that we start playing with. And so part of the politics we have here in the state, in uh, my conversations with both sides, I think what's happening is the reconnect and front futures for frontliners is uh, truly uh, uh, supported by both sides. It's just that jockeying for what else can we get out of this if we nod our head to the governor's initiative. And so a shame that we have to play politics in that regard. But the thing about it, though, is that when it comes to these type of programs, the thing that we have to keep focus on, especially right now, is that we are entering into a time that I feel like as a president here at a great college, I feel very blessed because I will never in my career have this moment again where we have the kind of funding that will be coming into our communities as we are going to have over the next six to 12 months. And so some of the conversations that we are having here in Grand Rapids, and I recommend it to everyone, I don't know where it's going to go, but it's a great conversation, which is to talk to our city and our county and our other leaders who we know will have some of these dollars coming into as well 
and asking the question, is there something we need to think about of how these dollars come into our communities rather than just think about my siloed organization and what we got we have to get done? Is there a way we can think more in terms of ecosystem and sustainability of our community with these dollars? So is there something that we can at the college say, okay, with these dollars that we know are coming to us, here's the lane we're going to play in and city, county, economic development, all these entities, workforce investment, how do we make sure that we can align where all of these funnels and channels of money make sense to the whole and not just to my organization? That's what we did with CARES and Carissa. Those were all about making sure the institution just is sustained and that we have some ways of maintaining ourselves and making sure we keep the doors open. They did well for that. I believe with ARP and the possible grants coming from infrastructure, TAC grants, now it's time for us to have the conversation of, since we won't see this kind of funding likely ever in our careers or even lifetime, how do we think in terms of community impact, collective impact, to see what those conversations look like? Because these are times that we've never seen before and will likely never see again. Absolutely. You know, staying away from the partisan piece of this, I was, I was listening to what you said, and, you know, I know your governor is subject to political dynamics that are interesting in the state, to put it politely. But you mentioned, though, that there's support on both sides of the aisle for those programs. And in terms of community impact, is it a workforce program to a lot of people more than a scholarship? I mean, how do you, it's both, I know. Yes. And, but, Here's the thing, and this is the opportunity that we in community colleges need to truly play hard and really play uh, play well, and that is this. So in my state, and I think most are this way, in my state, whether it's an R or a D beside the legislator's name, 99% of them believe in community college. I can't, if I were at a, my, one of my great four-year partners that I have a whole lot of respect for, I can't say the same there. Because some of my legislators have, well, but they, they do this and they have all this money. Okay. In community colleges, we have an incredible opportunity because, as I said, at the end of the day, in the state of Michigan, whether it be my Republican representative here in town that is head up of the subcommittee on appropriations, or whether it be the Democrat who's leading some of the efforts in the Senate, they all believe in the work that we do because we impact their people who live in their districts on a regular daily basis. So it gives us a voice that is truly and typically louder than a lot of our counterparts at, the, uh, at other levels. But not just that, we end up having not only that voice, but the product, if you will, of education, training, whether it be a credential, a certificate, whether it be a, an associate degree that sends them to a four-year, we have that. And so we have to make sure we're playing strong in that space of taking advantage of both, uh, whether it's an R or a D beside the name, should not matter because our mission is so unique and so impactful and widespread. We've got to leverage the fact that we have that mission right now. This is critical that we leverage that right now. Well, I know the polling backs up that broad support for the sector. Bill, we got to leave it here. Unfortunately, thank you for bringing your wisdom and energy to the show. And as you say, these next six months to a year are going to be something else in the sector. So I hope we can keep in touch as it all plays out. 
Oh, definitely. Anything I can do, Paul, you know that. I'll be, I'm there for you. Thanks, Bill. Next up is our sense-making segment. Please stick with us. Okay, I'm here with Lexi Barrett and Dave Altstadt from JFF. Free community college. We've heard we've heard a couple cases from a couple top community college leaders in the context of folks pushing back on the right for the proposal. Got some powerful senators saying community college is already free thanks to the Pell Grant, and you've got doubling Pell on the table, a competing idea. So, what do you think? Did they make a strong case? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's really interesting to have these two in particular, right? Russell is coming from a place that is, as he said, right, very red, very conservative. And in Michigan, that's a place that is notorious for its partisan and difficult state politics. And the fact that they've been able to summon community will and buy into this idea, I think is really fascinating and telling. And that gap that we see between some of the more conservative parts of the country that have bought into free community college and the national conversation is that's a pretty big gap that feels like it needs to be addressed before anything could move forward federally. I mean, I think they made a good case. I think talking about really the imperative that they're seeing in their communities and how this is helping not just the students, but the overall communities, I think is really compelling. Workforce and economy. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, I mean, I I think that's the story is that it's really hard to design a one size fits all free college program and to be able to sell that at a national level because it takes different partnerships for different purposes, right? The story that Russell told how he was able to get wide and broad support from his community was this concern about brain drain of youth leaving the area. And so that's why his program is focused on youth, high school students graduating. In Michigan, right, it's part of like the Rust Belt concern about the competitiveness of the economy and what's happening to workers. No wonder the direction there went to reconnecting adults to come back and get upskilled and the frontliners, which was such a huge story. And kudos to Governor Whitmer for picking up and thinking about let's do right by the people that are doing so much for us during the shutdown. And it played out. Michigan attracted well over 100,000 people to apply for frontliners and reconnect at a time when the community college enrollments across the country were way down. So there's something there. There's something really powerful about a message of a free college or college promise, especially when it connects with what is going on in the local area or the state. And that's the major dilemma or the issue, I think, at a national level, when very quickly it can just boil into, you know, this is about access and affordability. And that's not necessarily how it's sold and what's most important about it at a a local and state level. You know, in Michigan, Bill and I talked about some of the reforms embedded in those programs. And, you know, the idea that underlies, I think, all of this is this scholarship, if it becomes a reality at the federal level, going to pay off for students? Are low grad rates and job placement rates, how do you make the case in that context? How do you attach strings that help? Was basically what we talked about, dev ed reform in, in Michigan. Either of you have thoughts about what they said or what you'd like to see? 
Yeah, I mean, here I thought Russell's example he gave was fascinating from a like policy wonk perspective to see how that played out, that there was a string put on students saying you need to be ready for college. So we're not paying for remedial courses. And then what the college did was they just took away remedial courses. And then the result was better, right? So one could argue, oh, that's actually a good outcome for students in the end. But that was definitely not the way the policy was designed. And those of us who are thinking about how to design policy, we think a lot about what are the strings? What are the levers? Like, how do you design it to make the players who are going to be implementing it act in the way you want them to act? And this was just a really interesting example of a good result, but also totally not the way that it was intended to work out. And it's kind of interesting, the Michigan side, it, there's a flip to it where in ReConnect, they did attach the string of like, hey, you need to redesign development education. You need to accelerate people's entry into college. And you heard Bill sort of talk about how does that play out on a college level? How do you engage faculty and to co-create what the solutions? And, and it's a fascinating, that's a fascinating case study too. There, the policy actually, I would say, set the right lever to say, we know what works, co-requisite remediation. The evidence is clear and compelling that acceleration models like that versus the traditional prerequisite remediation works much better for a vast majority of students that are deemed not quite college ready by our traditional assessment practices. And from what I've heard through other conversations, right, there's a real challenge to sort of like how the college is going to sort of make that pivot. They've been working on it for a long time, but now they're under the gun to put that redesign in, in place. So it's a, that's also a fascinating uh, case study in all this. Yeah, and, and the case that they made, especially Russell, that a string should be about institutions being accountable, not the students, not, you know, GPA, drug test requirements, et cetera. Any sort of student level incentives, you know, Virginia with completion incentive for some of their scholarships that JFF would like to see? Or is it, are you really focused on institutional strings? Yeah, I think we think the institutional strings are probably where you're going to get the better change. But I also think it comes back to this question, the classic policy question of, is it a stick or is it a carrot, right? Is it a requirement that you're putting in the design or are you throwing additional funding into the pot to help provide and pay for these and encourage versus require? Um, and that's the tactic we're seeing the Biden administration take, right? In their proposal, they have free community college, and it's almost paired with the Student Success Fund, which would be $62 billion to fund these very sorts of um, strategies that are playing out so well in places like Michigan. And so I, I think that that's very much up in the air for me of which is the right way to go. And that's why it's important to look at these examples of what's happening, how it has played out in the states and in the communities that have done this so that we can design federal policy in a smart way. I think it should be a both and, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I think there needs to be funding. It takes effort and technical assistance to do these models like the DevEd redesign. We also need, you know, if I'm reading the student success proposal as part of Biden's plan, there's also extra money to sort of do those student success interventions to the populations that need that extra support than just free tuition. 
because at the end of the day, right, I think these massive investments, right, this is where you started us off, Paul, why are we doing this? It has to be driving to a, a bigger goal, and that is closing equity gaps and really enhancing the economic competitiveness of the nation, of local areas, of states. And that's about building a skilled workforce so people can thrive in the economy and employers can succeed. So those are got to be the driving aims behind all this. Well, Lexi, Dave, thanks for making sense of this one important episode. And we'll see you next time.